Well, good morning, church family. Everyone that made it out this morning gets a gold star, because I know many of you are coming back at four o'clock, right, to support Brock and Amanda and to pray for them. Um, Let's bow our hearts in prayer as we turn our attention to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for loving us in Jesus. We thank you that because of Jesus, we are no longer rebels, we are no longer outside, we are no longer distanced from you, but we have been reconciled to you as well-loved children. Father, there's no way that we could know that apart from the revelation that we see in your word. And so would you this morning, by your spirit, illumine that word to our hearts Grant us true repentance, convict us of our sin, confirm and strengthen us in everything that's good, that we would ever more deeply trust in Jesus as our Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let me just get organized. All my stuff usually goes there, and it's just a little further because of our gigantic tree. Um. Over the last couple of weeks leading up to Christmas during this Advent season, we've taken a break off of our series through Acts. And our intent has been to slow down the pace of our sermons so that we would look at just the first 18 verses of John's gospel in these weeks leading up to Christmas. So last week we looked at verses 1 to 5. This week we're going to try to get from 6 to the end of 13. You remember last week we said that you always have to begin with the end in mind, right? Authorial intent, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what did John set out to communicate when he wrote this gospel? It's in keeping that in mind that you see the context of this work that the Holy Spirit wrote through John. And then from that context, you can come to understand the immediate verses that you're reading. That's just good Bible reading, okay? Do you guys remember what John's purpose was in writing this? John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. John said, look, there were so many stories about Jesus, I couldn't include them all, but these ones were included so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. That's why John chose these accounts. That's why John wrote this prologue. So that at the end of reading it, you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God the Son. Because it's only by believing in Jesus that we have life in his name, true life. You know, the world overpromises and underdelivers. It says that life is found in so many different pursuits. But there is no life to be found apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John would say if he's standing here right now. That's what God says to us in his word through these writings of John. That's his purpose. So we're trekking along through this first chapter, and in the very first four verses, we cover these massive cosmic abstract thoughts, right? Things like, In the beginning, that's how John starts the account of Jesus, right back in creation, before the Big Bang. 
He then talks about the word, right? The logos, the very logic, the grammar, the warp and the woof of God revealed to us in Jesus. Huge, massive abstraction. He talks about light shining. You know, these are enormous cosmic constructs that John begins this account with. And then we come to verse 6. And John moves from the cosmic to the earthy. Look at verse 6. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It feels like an abrupt, hard right turn, doesn't it? You know, we're talking about things like the galaxy and the creation and the formation and the beginning and light and darkness. And then all of a sudden it like collapses down onto one man. There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Well, here's our entry point into this text this morning. This abrupt transition to John the Baptist is necessary if you are going to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and find life in his name. Let's begin by asking and answering the question, who is this John that was sent from God? Well, you may remember John the Baptist if you were raised in Sunday school or in church. You may have heard of him in the various gospel accounts. But he was Jesus' second cousin. Do you remember that? We're told in Luke's account of the birth narrative of Jesus that a newly pregnant Mary goes to visit her cousin who was named Elizabeth. That's right. Who also coincidentally happened to be pregnant but just a little further along. Some scholars would suggest about six months further along than Mary was. You remember that when Elizabeth greeted Mary, that something happened with that baby in the womb. Do you remember what happened? He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he flipped, and he jumped. And so in the gospel accounts, we see that the very first person under the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb was a fetus. Don't get me started. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I want to spend some time on this question of who was John the Baptist. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Evangelist believed that it was so important for us to know who John the Baptist was, what was his message, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and find life. Okay, so it's really important. Look over at, John, at Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, we see John the Baptist's birth was in fact miraculous as well. It's a different order of magnitude than the birth of Jesus to Mary. But we read about a man named Zechariah. And Zechariah was a priest in the temple. We hear about his wife named Elizabeth, and they were old. They were living under that horrible burden that some of us have faced where they weren't able to conceive a child. And they're in their old age. We're told in Luke chapter 1 that an angel visits Zechariah as he is serving God in the temple and, and tells Zechariah that a son will be born to his wife Elizabeth. 
But in the meantime, Zechariah is struck dumb. He can't say a word until this baby boy is born. Turn the page to verse 63, chapter 1, verse 63. So the baby is born to Elizabeth. And Zechariah, they're talking about, well, what should we name this baby, right? And Zechariah still can't speak at this time, so he's like, get me a tablet. And no, not an iPad. Get me a tablet. And he writes on it, his name is John. And instantly Zechariah's tongue is loosed. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to sing. Well, in verses 63 forward, we're told the news of this miraculous birth of this man who was sent by God, this man whose name was John, spreads throughout the countryside like wildfire. Look at verse 66, Luke chapter 1. And all who heard laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Okay, this is, remember what we're doing here. We are, we are saying, okay, if it was important under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for John to begin his account of Jesus with John the Baptist so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name, then we need to begin by delving into who was this John the Baptist. We need a healthy understanding of that. It's shocking that John has started the story of Jesus with everything but a manger, isn't it? It's possible if you skip over John the Baptist in the story of Jesus that you will come to be drawn to the teachings of Jesus. You'll look to him as a wise sage. You'll say, yeah, he sure, he sure had some good things to say. But you'll never truly believe that he is the son of God, the Christ. You'll never find life. Because his cross burial, resurrection, and ascension will never make any sense to you unless you start with John the Baptist. Let me, let, me, let me push into that a little bit. There is no belief in Jesus apart from John the Baptist. So Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, that's still where we are. He has been in the temple. He hears from the angel, your wife's going to have a son. He goes completely dumb. The baby's born. He writes on a tablet. His name is John. The Holy Spirit falls on him, and he bursts out in song. Look at verses 68 forward. I won't take time now to unpack this, but the basic point of this song that Zechariah sings out at the birth of John the Baptist is this. The Lord God is tearing open the curtain of time and space. He is intervening. He is acting. He is rescuing his people. That's what Zechariah said when John was born. And friends, I think for our world, for the church, and for you individually, it's a timely word for today. God intervenes. 
He's not aloof. He's not distant. He's not lost in the clouds. God intervenes in the world that he has made. And he intervened completely and chiefly and supremely in the incarnation and birth of Jesus. Now, sometimes even Christians can fall into this trap. We, we say the creed, we say all the right words, you know, but, but we functionally live as though we are deists and not theists. Crickets, you don't know what I mean. Okay, let me tell you what I mean. So, so deists are people who believe that there is a God, that he created everything, but that he, once he created everything, he set it in motion and then took his hands off and just lets the universe, the cosmos, unfold as it will. Those are deists. They refer to God as the divine clockmaker. He puts all the pieces in place, he winds it up, and then he takes his hands off. Christians are not deists. Christians are theists. We believe that God, the consistent witness of Scripture, is that God inserts himself into human history time and again for the good of his people and fully and completely in the incarnation of his son. That's what Zechariah is singing here in Luke chapter 1. He looks at his baby boy born and he says, oh, I know how this is going to work out. This son of mine is going to be the one who prepares the way for God to come and save his people. Okay, hands up if you listen to Handel's Messiah at Christmas. Do you listen to it? Yeah, yeah, me too. Constant repeat on my car. I sing it loud in the shower to the great chagrin of my family. Handel's Messiah was written for exactly that purpose. In the mid-1700s, there was a man named Charles Jennings who saw that the creep within the church and the creep of society was from theism to deism. People were living as though God had nothing to do with human affairs. And so Mr. Jennings, in 1742, opened his Bible, primarily to the book of Isaiah, and he began to... You know, highlight, copy, cut, paste. <laughs> Probably not. Passages directly from Scripture together to form a libretto that he then handed over to George, Hen uh, George Hendel. And he then composed the music around it. And so the entire point of Messiah, when you listen to it, is exactly this. To behold from Scripture... That God intervenes. Okay, this is part of the story of John the Baptist. Look at verse 76 to 79. Zechariah knew that his son was not the horn of salvation. He wasn't the savior. But that he was going to prepare the way. He was not the light. To talk in terms of John 1 verses 6 to 8. But he was the one who would fulfill the prophecies and prepare the way for the light to come. So, so Zechariah is looking at it and he's like, a son has been born. His name is John. He is God intervening to save his people. But there will be another son born within a few months. 
and he will be the savior. My son will be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. God is intervening, and he will give us a savior in that other son. Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And this child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John the Baptist is born. He begins to get muscly and strong. His spirit grows strong. He spends all of his time out in the wilderness. And then he emerged at just the right time, makes a public appearance to God's people, Israel. All orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. Look, you can't get through Christmas season without marveling at the sovereignty of God. He's pulling all the strings and making it happen to save his people. That's who John the Baptist was. Flip back over to John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. That's who he was. What was his message? Well, back over in Luke chapter 3, we see the unfolding of John the Baptist's ministry. So if you want, you can turn there again. Just keep your finger in Luke. In Luke chapter 3, verse 3, we're told that he went all around the region, all around the Jordan, telling everybody that they were awesome just the way they were if they only knew how truly good and deeply good they were. They just needed to discover the light that was within. Is that what it says? No, 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 no. That wasn't the message of John. He went all around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of, say it out, repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's interesting. His message to Israel, to God's people. Bear in mind, this is not a message for the world. This is a message for the church. Okay? To God's people. Repent. Look at verses 7 to 21 of, of chapter 3. The crowds gather around as he's baptizing people who are repenting, turning to God. But there are a whole bunch of religious people around who, you know, they're just not buying it. And he points to them and he says, you guys are brood of vipers. You are offspring of snakes. Church growth, um, seeker-sensitive 101. He says, you guys think that you're going to be saved because you're sons of Abraham. Abraham is your father. You think that that's going to save you. John the Baptist says, make no mistake, from these rocks, God can make sons of Abraham. He says, your pedigree is worth nothing when it comes to the wrath of God. He says, you guys are so blind. You're so blind. 
You can't see that the axe is already at the root. You are about to be cut off from God forever, and you don't even see it. Repent. That was his message to Israel. So the crowds are watching this. We're told in Luke 3, and they think he's the Christ. And he's like, nope, not a chance. Not me. He says, I'm, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. In John's gospel, we're told that after Jesus' baptism, Jesus comes up out of the water, and it's John the Baptist, the same one who's calling for repentance, who points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the message of John the Baptist. He calls God's people to repentance and trust in Jesus as Savior. Well, perhaps you think of John the Baptist and your mind just sort of defaults to stained glass windows. And you see this man and he looks kind of stately and genteel in stained glass or in iconography. But make no mistake, John the Baptist, this one who was a man sent from God named John, he was a wild man. We're told that um, from his description, if he showed up here on a Sunday morning, we would probably be a little bit uncomfortable with his presence. I mean, he'd be dressed in like camel hair and eating locusts, right? He probably wouldn't smell that great. He'd have like a fire in his eyes that was piercing to the point of making you feel uncomfortable. He would have a fire in his belly and a zeal for the Lord God. So that probably right about now, at some point in the service, he would, in a very un-Canadian way, stand up and make a scene and call us all to repent. That's John the Baptist. He had zeal for the Lord. And his message was, God is holy, you are not, there's a day of reckoning coming, Confess your sin, turn away from it, turn to God, and be baptized. That was his message. Okay, let's back away from this for a moment and just gather some gains. Remember what we're doing here. We are building a picture of who is John the Baptist from Scripture. Who is he? What is his message? And what we're driving toward here is why would John the Evangelist include John the Baptist in his account of the life of Jesus? Why was this important so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and find life in his name? That's what we're doing, right? So we've talked about who he was. We've talked about his message. Now let's talk about how it applies to having life by believing in Jesus. You can turn back to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Friends, John the Evangelist would want to tell you this.
if you want to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you want to have life in his name, it starts here. It starts with John the Baptist. It begins with allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and to have an honest assessment of your need for a Savior. Let's say that a different way. You're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I sure would like to have that kind of life that I hear about in the Gospels. A life that's not superficial, a life that is full and abundant, a life that is not temporal, a life that is eternal. I really want that. How do I get it? Well, friend, you are only going to experience that kind of life to the extent to which you're willing to admit before God that you are a desperate sinner in need of a Savior. Repent. See, this time of year, we're reminded that Christmas comes only to those in need. Christ comes to those who know that they need a Savior. So many of us live our lives self-deceived. We live in this um, self-medicated delusion, whether it's drinking too much, giving ourselves to amusement, throwing ourselves into hobbies, whatever it is, we're trying to ease our own consciences when our consciences are trying to tell us that there is a need for a savior, a need for repentance. We, we are like what the Bible says where we try to preach to our own soul and declare that there is peace, peace, when we know that there is no peace. We refuse to begin the Christmas story with John the Baptist, a call to repentance. What does that look like? Well, I think here in Northeast Burlington in 2023, So many of us fall into the trap of trying to keep up appearances. We think that if we are good enough, we'll be saved. Some of us, even with the best of intent, think that if we have enough moral currency, we can tip the scales. You know, if we're 51% of the time morally good, then we should be okay before God. If we're more good than bad. Or maybe we think that God grades on a sliding scale and we think, as long as I'm better than those who are around me, then I'll make the cut. Well, the fact of the matter is, moral currency might, in fact, make your life and your family better. There's something to be said for that, but it will not save you. You need to repent. Life that's found in Jesus begins with that acknowledgement that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Moral currency, someone who is pious and good in their law-keeping. Their life might be better than those who are not, but they are no closer to the righteousness of God than the person who is the worst sinner. And right now you're all going, whoa, 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 hold on a second, right? It's not because the morally 
good person isn't better than the person who's given themselves over completely. That's not the point. The point is that God's righteousness is so much greater that it makes no difference whether you are the worst, vilest sinner or the best law keeper, you are still falling exponentially short. You're no closer. An ant is no closer to the peak of the CN Tower than a grain of sand. You use your moral currency to tell yourself, peace, peace, where there is no peace. But the Christmas story begins with John the Baptist who says, repent, turn to God. You need to feel the impossibility of saving yourself if you're ever going to know Jesus Christ come that first Christmas as your Savior. There was a man from God named John. Look, um, this Christmas season, pray for a Christmas miracle. Pray that God would grant you a tender conscience. Pray that you would be quick to heed that convicting power of the Holy Spirit. To repent and to believe on Jesus. That's the call of John the Baptist. And that's why John begins with his birth. So let's conclude with verses 9 to 13, far more quickly. By the way, I cut out about three points from my sermon, and everyone said, praise the Lord. John's account is written so that you'll believe and have life. It begins with John the Baptist, but it's not about John the Baptist. It's about the light that came into the world. That's what John is saying here in these verses, verses 9 to 13. John the Baptist comes as the precondition to belief in Jesus that leads to life. Because John the Baptist calls you to shift your trust from yourself, from your pedigree, to the grace and mercy of God made known to you in Jesus. That's your only saving hope. That's the path to life. John chapter 1 verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming to the world and has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 10 to 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John is saying what you and I know to be true from experience. Back then, so many people rejected Jesus, even when he came. And the same is true today. Look, it's not even just out there. It's in here. It's in your own heart. When we talk about the rejection of the light, sometimes we try to frame that, well, that's only people that are, like, not in the church, right? That's only people other than me. But the fact of the matter is, every single one of us, in ways that are sometimes glaring and, and other times subtle, we live as though we have rejected the light. Verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, the light, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is where we'll stop this morning. In these two verses, John sets out three things that no one but the Holy Spirit can do. The first thing, it's the Holy Spirit that causes you to receive the light that is Jesus. When you receive Jesus as the light, it's because the Holy Spirit of God in his severe mercy has made you profoundly uncomfortable by convicting you of your sin. The only way you can receive life-giving gift of Jesus is to know that on your own you are bereft of light and life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Showing you your need for a Savior. In our Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer wisely in the morning prayer service says, look, our tendency when we're confronted with our sin is to dissemble it and to cloak it. When we're confronted with our sin on our own nature, apart from the Holy Spirit, we say things like, we dissemble it. We say, well, it's really not so bad. That's dissembling. Or when we're confronted with our sin, apart from the Holy Spirit, we cloak it. We say, well, that might be true, but then we try to wrap it in the other good deeds that we do. We dissemble and cloak. It's the Holy Spirit alone that can cause you to be convicted of your sin and leave you without any hope on your own so that you might confess your sin and trust in Jesus. That's what John's saying here. Everyone that received him, it's the work of the Spirit. The second thing is, believed in his name. Belief in Jesus is the second thing that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of those who were given to Jesus from before the foundation of the world. He convicts you of your sin, the Holy Spirit, and then he allows you to behold the beauty and the glory of the Savior. Well, if you are here this morning and you have even the slightest flicker of faith in Jesus, it's not because you're clever, it's not because you're smart. Jesus would say to you what he said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That's the work of the Spirit that you believe. The third and final thing, those who received him, those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. It's one of the sweetest promises in all of scripture. That sinner Though I am, God in Jesus has made me a saint. He's taken me from being a lonely orphan who's out in the cold, and He calls me a son. He calls you a daughter. He has welcomed you to his table and given you the family name.
you know, Christian man or woman, this is an important distinction that we have to make in our present day culture and church. People are sloppy with their thinking and they're sloppy with their words. They say things like, we are all children of God. The Christian man or woman knows from scripture that that's not true. Every person is not a child of God. We are all creatures of the creator. We are only children of God whom God has adopted into his family by giving us the conviction of our sins and then granting us belief in and receiving of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. To them he has given to be called children of God. It's all his work. And so in these verses, we see something that is programmatic of the Christian life for you and for me. Verses 6 to 13 begin with, there was a man from God whose name was John. The Christian life starts with repentance. And then it finishes with verse 13. Receiving, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and so being adopted into his family. And John's point is, it's all God's work. So if you see even the slightest flicker of faith, if you feel even mildly drawn to Christ, that's because God in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has laid hold of you. He's working in you. He's wooing you to himself. He's giving you the faith to repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you would have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your word that is living and active and sharp. We thank you that it's in your word written that we see your word incarnate by the power of your spirit. Work this Christmas miracle, we pray, that we would repent of our sin and trust in Jesus as Savior. Be glorified, we pray in his name. Amen.